Well, it's good to see you guys again. And if this is a first time or first time in a long time, uh, we started a new series this fall on the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past all the way to eternity still future. And so uh, this morning we're going to be continuing in that in Matthew chapter 5 and picking it up in verse uh, 38. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, you can go ahead and do that. Uh, we're going to be talking all about a little bit about vengeance today and uh, really how to respond to people who are opposing you in that moment. And so again, Matthew 5, verses 38, uh, really through 48 to the end of the chapter is where we're going to be. It's actually a very timely message in my own personal study. I've been uh, thinking about this, this, this kind of thing for a little while, but, but Thursday this past week, I was coming out, and, and I'm taking Caleb to school early in the morning, and I walk out in the front yard, and this is kind of what, what I see in my front yard waiting for me that morning. Um, yeah, like some people came by, they completely littered my front yard and all the different, I, I promise you, I'm not like that politically active or anything like that, but I mean, they came by, just trashed my yard and everything, and it was hilarious. Caleb's coming out, and he's like, why are all these signs here? My son's five, and he's like, why are all these signs? I'm like, buddy, people are playing a joke on us, it's funny and stuff. He's like, why is that funny? I don't understand why that's funny. It's not funny at all. He's like, that seems kind of mean, and I was like, well, you know, there's that. And so, of course, I'm texting, I'm kind of, I'm like, all right. Who, who, who's behind this? And of course, first person I'm thinking of is Dawn Moody. If you guys know Dawn, like our preschool minister right over here, she's got that little thing in her eye. I'm like, I don't trust you. You're always up to something. And she's always like messing with us and things of that nature. Uh, and then I come and find out it's actually Cameron Sparks and our youth ministry that trashed my front yard uh, this past week. And so uh, all that to say, vengeance has been on my mind quite a bit lately and stuff. And so... Um, yeah, if you don't see him preaching here anytime soon, then you know what's kind of going on there, right? But um, anyway, uh, a little while ago, Ed Stetzer this past year, he wrote a book called Christians in the Age of Outrage. Christians in the Age of Outrage, in which he's making the argument that we are living absolutely in the time of outrage. It's a time where, uh, where, where people don't just disagree on social media. I mean, they attack each other. They bash each other. They go after families and just go above and beyond. And he's making this case that we're probably more divided today than we have been in the past 50 years uh, in America. And I think we get some of this, this thing. We see this around us all the time. Uh, about two weeks ago, I was at a conference here in Dallas, and I was listening to a man named Leonce Crump. And him, uh, I was listening to him preach, and he's a pastor up north. Uh, very multi-generational, multi-ethnic church body. He's an African-American man, and his church is very, um, it's just very diverse. And so he was talking to us a little bit about some of the difficulties that this has presented, especially in the past year, given all the racial conversations that have been taking place. And so he, he was talking about, he's recounting one of these stories where uh, this is just, the, it was a Sunday after uh, there was another police brutality shooting that took place. There was a lot of rioting and, and things going on around it. And he was talking about the tension of being a pastor in that time and, and being able to address a crowd that's very mixed in beliefs and backgrounds and things of that nature. And so he did, he came to the front one day, and in response to that, he just wanted, to, he, he told his church, he said, look, I want to acknowledge that there's a lot of you in here uh, just that, are, that are grieving this morning. I mean, the, the, the things that took place this past week, you're grieving, you're grieving, you're grieving. And there's a lot of you in here that have no idea why in the world so many people are grieving today. And what I'd encourage us to do as a church body is that we would weep with those who weep and that we would rejoice with those who are rejoicing today. And he just went on and he just talked about it. He's like, I know that a lot of you don't understand what's going on, but if you see someone who's weeping today, would you come alongside them? Would you be their brother and sister in Christ? Would you weep with those who weep and would you rejoice with those who are rejoicing? And uh, what he said took place in the next few weeks um, immediately after this time was that about 150 to 250 different people in the church body ended up leaving the church that day because of what he said. 
And he went on to describe, he goes, I got back from that Sunday and my email inbox was just full of hate mail after hate mail. I mean, some, one side was saying, hey, you didn't go far enough in blasting what took place over here. And the other side saying, hey, you went way too far in talking about this thing. You don't know what you're talking about. And so he's like, he said, I had both people, social media, Twitter, my email inbox, people coming up to me, brothers and sisters in Christ, people that I've spent my entire life discipling, pouring into. He goes, I've baptized them. I've baptized their children. And they're blasting me all over the place, left and right. Church, we're living in the age of outrage right now. Right, like we're living in this time where there's not just criticism or critique. It's it's hey, I'm going after your family. I'm going after your character. And like like we can't. We're we're so far away. Um, it's not even funny. And so the question that I want to talk about this morning, which is the question that Jesus is going to address in this more uh, in the passage, is essentially like how are we supposed to treat people that are vehemently opposed to you? Right, not just not just people that you disagree with, but like how do you treat people? How do you respond to people that are in vehement opposition? To you, And I think that's exactly what Jesus is going to be addressing for us in our passage this morning. So again, if you have your Bibles, Matthew 5, we're going to pick it up together in verse 38 and go to the end of the chapter here. Um, again, if this is the first time in a little while, but what, this is a continuation of a sermon that we've been kind of um, in for the past four to five weeks, right? And so this isn't a one-off kind of a message. Jesus is preaching the sermon, the famous sermon on the mount in which he's on the side of a mountain. He's preaching to not only his inner circle of disciples there, but he's preaching to this loud, this, this large crowd there. And essentially what he's doing with this message is every step along the way, he's raising the bar of morality and he's calling people to holy living and to righteous living from wherever they are. He's challenging all these presuppositions. He's challenging their values and he's, just, and he's just raising it over and over again. At the exact same time, he's also provided us this secure foundation from which you and I can actually pursue that holy calling. It's what he's doing when he says things like, I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament law. You, you religious leaders over here who are afraid that I came to just wipe out all your traditions and all the Old Testament law. I didn't come to abolish the law. I actually came to fulfill the law for you. In other words, everything that the law requires of you, perfect righteousness, perfect holiness, perfect obedience, blood is a penalty for sin, all of these different things, I didn't come to, to abolish them or get rid of them. I came to fulfill them as a substitute for you. So therefore, you're able to pursue this holy and righteous calling from this safe place, knowing that everything I require of you has also been fulfilled for you, and that's going to take place through his uh, future resurrection and uh, cru crucifixion and resurrection. And so it's a very safe place from that point forward. What he's doing at the end of chapter 5 is kind of interesting. As he's calling everybody to this higher ho holy standard here, he's essentially attacking a few different areas that religious people typically think we're pretty good at, right? We, I've never murdered anybody. I'm pretty good. I haven't committed adultery. I'm pretty good. And he's essentially saying, okay, I know you think that you're doing pretty well, but I'm actually calling you to more. My holy standards are actually calling you to a whole lot more. And so he's essentially just kind of raising the bar of righteousness all over the place. Here's what he's going to say next. So follow along with me here in verse 38. Here's what he says. He says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If anyone slapped you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks of you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Anyone else disturbed by this passage? In all seriousness? I mean, anyone else? I really, really struggle with this. I mean, it, it, it seems like he's just saying, hey, you need to be, you need to submit to the bully in your life. And you need to take the, 
the stuff that's coming your way. I mean, it sounds a lot like he's saying, okay, if you are in an abusive situation, you need to remain in that abusive situation. You need to submit a little bit longer and just take it like a good old boy, like a good old girl. Church, you need to hear me like that's not at all what he's saying in this passage. And the reason I want to say this up front is because this is an abusive person's favorite passage. They use a passage like this and they hurl it at the person they're abusing in order to keep them in an abusive situation so that they can continue to be in this abusive power in this kind of a relationship. Church, if you find yourself in a situation where you are in this kind of abusive situation, like we want to be a church where we are helping you get out. We help you get safe. We help you get to a safe place so that real things can actually be dealt with, right? It's not what Jesus is talking about in this passage. We're going to get into that in just a little bit here. But like, keep in mind, when Jesus is making all these statements in this passage, he's making a number of different comparisons to things that the Jewish people have always been told and always been taught, right? And so uh, he's not undoing the things that have been said. Uh, he's continuing to take the things that have always been said, that have always been taught, and he's building upon those different things. And so in verse 21, he says, you've heard it said that you shouldn't commit murder, but I tell you, you shouldn't even get angry with someone and call them a fool. In other words, like he's not undoing the fact that murder's wrong, right? Murder's always still wrong. You probably still shouldn't kill your friends, right? Uh, that's not being undone there. He's saying, okay, in addition to that, uh, the anger that's going on inside your heart, like that's also just as much of a problem. Same thing in verse 27. You heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery, but I'm telling you, you shouldn't even lust over anyone who's not your spouse. It's the same thing. Adultery is still wrong. He's not eliminating that thing. He's adding on to that thing and saying, okay, the lust that you have inside of your heart, like that's just as much of a problem. And it's the exact same thing that's taking place here. You've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and, and, and this, that, and the other, right? I, I, there's still a time for justice. That part's not being undone. And he's just saying that there's more to it here. There's another side here that you need to be able to see in this conversation. He talks about the reasons for this, this law in the first place in Deuteronomy 19.16. I, I want you to see this here. This is God giving this law to Moses in order to govern uh, the nation of Israel at that time. Verse 16, here's what it says. If a malicious witness takes the stand in order to accuse someone of a crime... The two people involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in the office at the time. The judges must make, must make a thorough investigation. And if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, then due to the false witness as the witness intended to do to the other person. And that, that's interesting. Um, here's why. You must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this, and they'll be afraid, and they'll never again do such an evil thing among you. Show no pity, life for a life, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot. That's the Old Testament law. Like that was given by God to the nation of Israel through their mediator Moses right there in order to govern the civic relationships here in the nation of Israel. It's known as the law of retaliation. It was a very, very good law that, again, governed the nation of Israel. And, of course, the purpose of this law was to purge the evil from among the Israelites there by letting people know that if they were to engage in evil in the same way that they engaged in that evil, that would also then be done to them. Now, the problem with this a law kind of like this is that not everyone's motivated by fear, right? Like, this is the problem. This is the, defici the, the deficiency in this kind of a motivation. Not everyone's motivated by fear. It's a good motivator. It's an inferior motivation to love here because there's a lot of people in the world today that don't actually fear the consequences of their behavior, and they never actually believe that they're going to be caught. 
And so what ends up taking place in Israel and even throughout the ancient Near East at that time is this permissive culture of retaliation. Right, that's what ends up taking place, kind of like we talked about a couple weeks ago, this permissive culture of divorce because Moses allowed it back in the Old Covenant. There's a permissive culture of re retaliation and vengeance that breaks out in the ancient Near East. And, and you and I, we know how vengeance goes, right? Like when you start engaging in vengeance, it's never an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's never equitable justice, right? It's never equitable. Like when vengeance comes into play, the difference between justice and vengeance is that vengeance goes beyond justice and it's always one upping and it never has an end. And so that's kind of what's taking place here. It's a, you know, back in college, all of my friends, we had a, a permissive culture of pranking each other, right? <laughs> that's kind of what we did. We, we were like, we were friends and like all throughout the college years, we were always pranking each other big time. And so we were always messing with each other. And whatever, whenever somebody did something to me, like I'd go back and I'd one-up them again. And then that person would one-up me. And then I'd one-up them. And we'd just keep going on and on and on. And we have stories for the rest of our life, right? Well, when we got married, uh, one of my old college roommates, he ended up moving across the hall from us here in Dallas. And uh, he was married. I was married. And, and uh, I remember I made him come over one day. I was like, all right, bro. Uh, we're not in college anymore. We can't do this. Like, I'm married, you're married. I was like, we need a truce right now because if we don't make a truce right now, you start pranking me, I'm going to start pranking you. One of us is going to end up dead very soon. And uh, that's going to be bad. Like, our apartment's probably going to blow up. We're, we're never going to end this thing, right? Like, that's what retaliation does. It never has an end. It's continuing to one-up each other. And so it's never just an eye for an eye. It's always an eye for an eye and an arm. And then you're going to take my eye and arm, and I'm going, to, I'm going to raise you another leg. And then I'm going to take both of your arms, and I'm going to do it to your family. And I'm going to just keep going on and on and on and on and on. And that's a permissive culture of retaliation. And so in the middle of that culture, like, that's what Jesus is speaking into right here. And he says, okay, okay, I get that you understand justice. I get that you understand that part. I'm a just God. That's, that's how he's revealed himself primarily all throughout the old, old Covenant, right? I'm a just God, and I can see that you love justice, but are you ready to understand my grace? Because you also need to know, like, yes, I'm a just and I'm a holy God, but I'm also full of mercy and full of compassion and full of grace and full of kindness. So I understand that you get justice right now. But the question that I have for you is, do you also get grace? Do you know how to love people when they don't deserve your love? That's the question that I want to ask today. And so in the middle of that context, like, that's what Jesus is talking about. He continues building on this whole spirit of the law, and he's just blowing up their values and stuff. And he's saying, okay, you get the legalities of the law. You get the letter of the law here, but, but do you understand the spirit of the law behind this thing, right? Like, the spirit of the law is not that you're going to engage in more and more evil. The, the spirit of the law is that evil is going to be done away with, right? That's the whole thing. And so uh, he's going to be building on that, verse 43. You've heard it said that in the same context, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Church, does God ever tell you to hate your enemy? Has he ever said you can, you, it's okay for you to hate your enemy? Exodus 23, again, back in the Old Testament law, this is what they've heard from the very beginning. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, this is all relevant for all of us, um, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. Right, that, that, that's been the teaching from the very beginning. Like you've never, he's never said, it's okay for you to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's never been the thing from the very beginning. It has always been, you love your enemy, you care for their ox, you care for their donkey, you do good unto your enemy. Nevertheless, we know the problem inside of us. Like there's something deep inside of our soul. We love it when our enemies get what they deserve. Like I love watching the videos of the bully 
getting bullied. You know what I'm talking about? Like we, we love those things. We love it when people get what they deserve. And so the religious leaders began teaching that it's okay. You can love the people that you're like. You can love the people that are around you. You can love the people that are easy to love. And it's okay for you to hate the people that are, your, are, are opposed to you or that are your enemies. And so Jesus comes in and he says, okay, church, like I, I want to show you another way. Yes, I'm just. Yes, there's justice right here. I want to show you another way. And he points to two things. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. That's it. No more vengeance, no more eye for an eye and a leg and, and one-upping each other over and over again. No more revenge culture and things like that. Just like that's it. Just love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? That you may be a ch children of your Father in heaven. Now, when Jesus says this part here, like, what's he talking about? Like, why would he say, what does it mean that you may be children of your Father in heaven? Because John's really clear about this. As many as have actually received him, to them he's given the right to be called a child of God, right? He's not introducing a new mode of salvation here, right? This is, uh, as many as have received the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ through faith, to them he's given the right to be called children of God. What he's doing here, he's, he's, he's pointing us to this reality that children often imitate their fathers and their parents that they see. Like, that's what children do. We do the things that we see our fathers do. It's the reason why I'm a giant Florida Gator fan to this day, even though I went to Texas A&M, right? Dad went to the University of Florida. I was raised my entire life to cheer hard for the Gators all the time. And I'm still a massive Gator fan because Dad was a massive Gator fan. I see this in my five-year-old son, Caleb, all the time. Like, he wants to wear a suit and tie to work because, or to, to school as a five-year-old at kindergarten because he saw me wear a suit and tie one day. And a belt, right? That's his big thing. He, like, we were out going to his wedding one time, and he just, he's like, whoa, I want to I wear that exact same thing. And the kid is like obsessed with ties and, and dressing up and, and, and belts and things, because he sees his father do that, right? Like, that's what we do. We do the things that we see our father do, and it's exactly what Jesus is getting at here. Like, the reason you and I are able to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us is because it's exactly what we've seen our father do for us. Right? Paul talks about this, Colossians 1 and Ephesians 2. Like we were enemies of God. We were hostile in mind and we were engaged in evil deeds. And in the middle of that place, God came and in his love, he saved us. Now that you're in Christ Jesus, Paul says in Ephesians 2, you who were once far away, you've been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made these two groups into one, Jews and Gentiles. And he's destroyed this barrier between them by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and its regulations. His purpose being to create in himself one brand new humanity out of the two, thus establishing peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to the Father through the cross of Jesus Christ by which he put to death our hostility. In other words, church, like that's what we've seen our Father do for us. He took Jews and he took Gentiles. He took the rich, he took the poor. He took white, black, yellow, brown, and red. He took male and he took female, Republicans and Democrats, and he reconciled all who would believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to the Heavenly Father through the cross of Jesus Christ, thus establishing peace with one another by bringing us into the exact same family. Church, that's what we've seen the Father do for us. As many as have received him, to them he's brought into a brand new family and given the right to be called children of God. He's made us into the body of Jesus Christ, each of us essential members of that body. And he didn't just do it for the Jews, he did it for the Gentiles. And he didn't just do it for the rich, he did it for the poor. And he didn't just do it for me, he did it for all the people who had even come to oppose me too. So here it is, church, like if, if that's what we've seen our Heavenly Father do for us, then how in the world could you and I ever choose vengeance when God always chose love? 
That's the question that's on the table. I mean, he continues to say of the Father, he says, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, like there's this common grace that he gives to all. There's this common love there that he loves all, the righteous and the unrighteous. He, he brings rain and he brings sunshine. There's a, there's, a, there's a basic level of grace that covers all different people right down there, not in a salvific way, but in a, hey, like you, I, I'm, 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 I'm waking you up today. There's rain coming today. There's sunshine coming today. And he says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? In other words, if you're showing partiality and you're saying, hey, look, I, I'm going to love the people that are just like me, like, like what reward is there for that? Like everyone does that. If you greet only your own people, the people that look like you, the people that dress like you, the people that think like you, the people that you like, what are you doing more than other people? Don't even the pagans do that? Church, like how do you p- treat the people that aren't your friends? And how, do you, how do you respond to the people who openly op- oppose you? How do you respond to people, to your friends or your family members who stabbed you in the back in the past? How do you respond to the business partner who sued you and left you with nothing? How do you respond to the ex who continues to slander your name in front of the kids? How do you respond to the in-laws who are terrible and do not want you to continue in a relationship with your spouse? How do you respond to the spouse who's lied to you and cheated for years and you've never been able to recover? And and hear me, like he's not saying there's not a time for boundaries. And he's not saying that, that you shouldn't go and be safe, but he is saying, he's saying, have you, on an interpersonal level right here, like as you run up with people in your life, have you ever considered what it looks like to give your enemy grace? Church, the one thing that you can always do safely, no matter what that scenario may be for you, is you can always get away. You can always find safety and you can always pray for your enemy, which is exactly what Jesus says. Like when was the last time that you even thought to pray for your enemy? And I'm not talking about, hey, Lord, drop the, the anvil on their head today from the third-story building. Like, not that prayer. I'm talking about, Father, would you, would you actually give that person who opposes me, would you give them grace? Heavenly Father, would your Holy Spirit just do a work in their life? Would you set them free from the bondage that they're living in? Would you set them free from the pain, the anger, the hostility, the rage that they are living in every single day? Would you set them free by the beauty of your grace? Can I be honest with you? Like, this is so much easier when this is on a general, generic level. I wrestled with this so much this past week because I feel like I've been guilty in, in talking about loving your enemies in a, in a callous way, which makes it feel like it's actually an easy thing to do. A couple weeks ago, I'm sitting in a, in a room with a bunch of guys, and we're studying this passage together, and I made the comment, and I said, you know, I'm having a hard time connecting with this a little bit right now because I don't feel like I have very many enemies that I know of anyway, right? Like they may hate me, but I don't know about it. And so they're, I'm grateful for that. And you know, I, I don't feel hostility towards any people right now. And I made that comment. And this is one of the difficulties of kind of preaching. I always kind of go through this process. I'm like, okay, Lord, beyond just what, what's going on out here, like, what do you want to do in me? And I wrestle with this a lot. I was like, I don't feel like I've got very many enemies that I'm aware of right now. And there's this past weekend on Saturday, like God brought that one person who's a legitimate enemy in my life yesterday. And I heard about the damage as a person that has been around the, even the church in recent years and not lately and stuff, but I heard the stories of the abuse that he'd been hurling on his spouse. 
and I heard the damage, and I, heard, I saw the fallout. And we talked about the court case, and we talked about all these things, and I, and I heard everything that continued to go on, and I'd been a victim a tiny, tiny, tiny bit compared to the enormous things that she's gone through herself. And, and I remember going back, we, we were laying in bed, and Kat just kept asking me, she's like, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? And I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what I was feeling inside except to say, like, I was just, like, I was furious. I was just absolutely furious. Like, this guy, I thought things were clean, and he came back, and I just kept, I kept kind of sitting there kind of going, like, Lord, I'm, I'm angry at this man. Like, I'm furious at the things that he's done to this woman in our church. It's wrong. It's vile. It's absolutely evil. I'm angry. It kept me awake all night long. And the reality is, like, I did not want him to have grace. The reality is, like, Lord, I was like, drop that anvil now. Like, I wanted justice, church. Like, what do you do when you find yourself in this place where you want the justice of God more than you want his mercy on someone else? Like, like that's where a lot of us are, right? Like, when it's, when it's not a generic situation, like, love your enemies, great. Like, we all can celebrate that message. But when I'm saying, no, 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 love that person in your life, the one who's done those things in that moment, the one who's crushed you in so many different ways, it takes on a different meaning, Right? Like, the reality is that so many of us are kind of like Jonah when God gives him the mission to Nineveh. You remember this story? Like, God goes and he tells this prophet Jonah and says, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to go preach the gospel to this people that are the most wicked people on the planet. Like, these are the people that are, that are crucifying and killing and murdering your people. Like, the most wicked, the most vile people on the planet. And I want you, Jonah, to go cross that ocean and I want you to go preach the gospel to them that they may receive my forgiveness and be healed. And you remember exactly what he does. Like he runs as fast as he possibly can. He gets on a boat and he tries to outrun the grace of God. And of course God finds him and yada, yada, yada. He ends up going to Nineveh. He ends up preaching the gospel to them kind of reluctantly. And you remember what Jonah says at the end of it? He goes, God, this is exactly what I knew was going to take place. He preaches the gospel and Nineveh repents and God brings revival and healing to this land. And he says, this is exactly why I chose to run in the first place. I did not want you to bring grace and I did not want you to bring healing and mercy to these people who don't deserve it. And church, reality is like so many of us, like we are there right now. We are living in this subtle, even tiny, tiny bit of self-righteousness where we are forgetting that I needed that exact same grace before God in order to be made right before him. Like where did we go when we would rather have the vengeance of God than the mercy and the grace of God in other people's lives? We can always pray for them. About 10 years ago, a buddy of mine started a ministry in town that I'd still say, I think it's one of the most incredible ministries I've ever seen or been a part of. But uh, he was living out in Vickery Meadows at the time, and, and he was noticing that a bunch of his neighbors who were being moved in the apartment complex out there, um, they were actually, they had actually been rescued as victims of human trafficking in the area. If you remember some of these conversations about 10, 15 years ago, there's a lot of awareness about the problem of human trafficking here in Dallas. Major, major problem. A lot of the girls were moving in there. He de developed these friendships with them, and started hearing their stories, and so he developed this ministry where they go into the dark places of Dallas, and they go try to bring hope and grace and the gospel and, and try to bring healing to these dark areas. And so he developed this, this team, and they would go out to these underground brothels, and they would work together with the police to be able to identify these places. And uh, in times when the police were not able to do anything, which, is, which was a lot of the time because of the, how big it was and how secretive everything was and how hard it is to actually prosecute people, they would come in and try to bring the gospel into these situations. And so these teams of women, they would go into these underground brothels and they would go in and they would ask to just simply, we want to come and we want to give pedicures and manicures to the girls that are in these places. And so they would come, they would wash their feet. 
They'd read John 13 and just talk about how, how Jesus washed his disciples' feet, and they would share the gospel. They'd give them a little card here uh, about how to get out and how to get safe if they ever needed a safe place and that kind of a thing. And so that's what they would do. The men, they would sit out in the parking lot. They would pray for what was going on in the inside, and they wouldn't go inside for obvious reasons. And, and he tells the story of one day, he and his friends were sitting in the parking lot, and they're just watching the Johns come out of these places. The Johns are what they call the people that pay for these services, right? These are the men that go into these places. They abuse underage women. They abuse captive women, and they're coming out, and, uh, they, and they're getting away scot-free. And he just talked about sitting in the car that day, praying for freedom and reconciliation, praying for God to move inside those places, watching these Johns walk out. And he just said, I, I remember feeling such unbelievable hatred for them. Like I looked at them and I, I saw my friends who I knew were their victims at some point in time, right? And that's all that I could see. And all I felt was just unbelievable rage and hatred for these men that were coming out there. And meanwhile, they would go back and they'd start praying. And he goes, one of these times when we were praying, he goes, it was like it was like God just smacked me in the face with this unbelievable conviction in the middle of our prayer for God to go and to bring rescue to the victims that were going on inside of that little brothel. It's like the Holy Spirit just whispered and said, hey, the same rescue that you're praying for in them, in, in that building, I want to do in those Johns that are walking out right there. Like I know, I know that their sin is unbelievably vile and evil because it absolutely is. But you needed my grace and you needed my mercy too. And they're praying together and kind of discerning this message and stuff like that. And, and, and he goes, we just, we sat there and we fought that message so hard. Because I looked at those men and I hated those men. They did not deserve grace. They did not deserve love in that moment. They deserved an anvil to drop on their head. And so they sat there and they said, okay, okay, Lord, we'll pray. But they gathered together and they started praying. They said, okay, Lord, here's the truth. You, uh, we, we can't lie to you. Like, Lord, I hate these men. That's just the truth. I hate these men. Would you do something in me that gives me just a little bit of the love that you have for them too? God, because I can't do anything about them. Would you come and would you give me a tiny bit of love for these men that, that I hate so much? And what he said was like, church, can you imagine like praying that prayer for a second? Like, can you imagine like what it's like to pray that prayer for the person, maybe it's in your life, maybe somewhere around you or something like that, and actually saying, God, like I have no capacity to love this person in this moment, but I know that somehow like your grace is unbelievable. It's bigger than just my sin. It's all these different things, but God, would you give me an ability to, all, to be safe and to be separate over here, but God, would you give me the ability to have just a little bit of love for this person over here? And he started praying, God, would you set them free? Well, God, would you... Would you break the bondage of addiction in their life? God, would you, would you rid them of the anger and the futility and the shame and the things that are going on inside of their life? God, would you break those, those chains immediately? And he said, you know what happened is the longer we started to pray that God would give us a heart like he actually delivered on that prayer. And he would tell you that from the time he started praying that prayer, he goes, his entire ministry began to change because the focus wasn't only on what was going on inside, although that remained the major part of this ministry, but the focus began these men sitting around outside and they began to engage these Johns that were coming out that the police could do nothing about, that jail wasn't exactly an option at that particular point in time. And they would come in and they would begin to pray with him and they would begin to share the gospel. And a handful, a small, small handful would actually repent and get in recovery programs. And God would begin to set them free over time. And fruit began to come from this thing. Church, like how in the world 
are we actually supposed to love someone like that? Like how in the world, how can you do that if you're living in self-righteousness? If you're not painfully aware that every single day, like I need your grace, oh God. Like I need your forgiveness. All of my own personal self-righteousness, and although it's been clothed in religiosity, like how are we going to have that kind of love if we are living in subtle self-righteousness where we don't actually believe that I needed the exact same kind of grace? Like what Jesus is asking us to do here, like none of it makes any sense. How do we do this if we haven't actually received from our Heavenly Father and seen the Father do the exact same thing for us every single day? Like what Jesus is saying, it makes no sense whatsoever. Because if we're actually going to pray for them, and then we're actually, it's not just pray, it's not just separate and, and, and do it from a distance. It's always, like there's some situations where you're, you're, rubbing, next to, you're rubbing shoulder to shoulder with some of these people. Right? And there's some situations where you have the opportunity to actually be the answer to the prayer that you've been praying. Right? And, and he doesn't leave it at that. Like sometimes it's just separate and you, got, you can pray. But sometimes you're, you're, you're so intertwined right over here that God's saying, okay, but you're going to be the answer to this prayer. And to that he says, I want you to love them, not just with affection. I didn't ask you to like them, but I am asking you to love them and to be intentional with that love. I mean, Paul's going to say that that's the definition of love. It's what love does. Like, that, that's, that's, who we, that's who we are. And he's going to say, like, if you're going to love them, then you actually need to be able to forgive them, right? Forgiveness is this solitary thing. Like, forgiveness is very different from reconciliation. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Reconciliation takes two people to tango. Forgiveness is a decision to be able to let go of my right for retaliation and to be able to trust God for the peace that I think that retaliation would give. It's a decision to say, I'm not going to harm you in the same way that you've harmed me. It's an individual decision that you can make in worship to the Lord Jesus Christ in which you never are actually reconciled with someone else. I love, that, I love the way Corey Ten Boom talks about this. Um, if you know Corey Ten Boom, she's a hero of pretty much every pastor. Um, but she, uh, she was a Dutch Christian back in the day who was very, very famous for resisting the Nazis and hiding Jews in her home. Towards the end of the war, um, she was caught. She and her sister were put in a concentration camp. And uh, her sister would eventually uh, be killed in the concentration camp. Two weeks later, she was miraculously released from that concentration camp due to a, a clerical error, which I would say the providence of God. But due to a clerical error, she was actually released two weeks later. Shortly after the war, um, she would travel throughout Europe preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and preaching this love and forgiveness that she knew so well. She writes about one of those encounters, and she talks about how one day she was in a church in Munich, and she saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched in between his hands. One moment, she says, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next moment, I saw a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. In other words, she's seeing him right there, but she's immediately brought back to where she was in the middle of that concentration camp. It came back to me with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, oh, how thin you were. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrook concentration camp. And he comes up to her and he says, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he said. I was actually a guard there. Obviously, he didn't remember me, she says. But since that time, he goes on, and he says, I've, I've become a Christian, and I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I've done. But I was wondering if you would actually forgive me too. 
His hand comes out and he says, how about it? Would you actually forgive me too? She says, I stood there. I whose sins had every day to be forgiven by the grace of Jesus Christ. And I could not extend my hand. And Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many more, it could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it felt like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing that I've ever had to do. I stood there with coldness, clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion, she says. I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the heart's temperature. Jesus, help me, I I prayed silently. I can lift my hand, I can do that much, but I need you to supply the feeling. And so woodenly, And mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder. It raced down my arm, sprang into our joint hands. And then his healing warmth, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. And I cried out, I forgive you, my brother, with all of my heart. I forgive you. Church, how in the world do you do that? Like, not in the general level, like, hey, love your enemies. No, no, no. Like, how do you love someone? And how do you give them forgiveness when that's the offense that's on the table? Dr. Lewis Baldwin, in his book about the prayer life of Martin Luther King Jr., he talked about how Dr. King would always respond to his enemies, not with revenge, but through personal prayer retreats where he would go away and he would lock himself in these rooms for days in order to pray for his enemy's healing and for his own ability to forgive them and continue with grace and with love. Church, how do you do that? Like, how do you do that? How do you love and forgive someone like that when they don't even think you're fully a person? When they're looking at you and they say three-fifths of a human being? Like, how do you do that when they don't even want their kids going to the same school as your kids? They don't want to ride the same bus as you're riding. They don't want to drink from the same water fountain. Like, how in the world Are you supposed to love someone like that? How do you do that if you're living in self-righteousness, if every single day you are not fully aware of the enormous amount of grace and forgiveness that has been applied to you, that you could be made right before God? Like how in the world do you do that if you're not receiving from the love of a father every single day and you're not seeing him do that for you and all around you every single day over and over and over again? How in the world are you supposed to love your enemies and do this ridiculous, impossible thing that Jesus is telling us to do if we were not receiving from him every single day and fully aware of what he's done for us? Church, like you've got to understand like what he's saying here, like there's nothing easy about this kind of love. It is a completely abnormal kind of love that makes no sense. It's coming from an abnormal God with an abnormal amount of love towards you that's able to transcend the pain that you're feeling so that, and it allows you to see people like, the, like, like Saul and, and eventually see the Apostle Paul. Like nothing about what Jesus is doing here, it makes any sense. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. In other words, like go above and beyond in showing this person love and kindness. Like Paul's going to say that in 1 Corinthians 13, like that's actually the definition of love. Like it's not just something that you're feeling, it's patient and it's kind. Like there's nothing normal about what Jesus is asking us to do. It doesn't envy, he says. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor other people, even if they deserve to be dishonored. And especially if they don't deserve to be dishonored. 
That's not what love is. It's not self-seeking or narcissistic. It's not only thinking about yourself. It's not easily angered. That spouse is just going off over and over and over again and just destroying everything and can't keep their cool. Like, that's not love. It's not love. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. In other words, like it doesn't celebrate or enable sin. It doesn't celebrate or enable sin. There's a time to get away and say, you know what? The greatest thing right here is that you would come to repentance. It doesn't celebrate those things. It always protects not the guilty from from receiving justice. It protects the innocent. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. Church, that's what love does. It goes above and beyond when it doesn't make any sense that they may be one. A number of years ago, I had a chance to go to South Sudan. This is uh, in between these two wars that were going on there right now. And if you know anything about going, what's going on in South Sudan, like right now there's a lot of unrest and fighting and civil war going on there. And about 15, 20 years ago, there was another civil war kind of at the front end of that thing. And I had a chance to go visit with this ministry we supported and some good friends there. And it was an interesting dynamic. We were way out in the bush, and there's no electricity, no infrastructure, nothing out there. And we're just going in these communities. We're praying with people. We're providing some goods and helping the local pastors there build their local congregation so that they are able to communicate the love of Christ and serve their communities really well. Well, they took us into this one little town, and I was preaching in this, in this place, and they kind of brought out all these families from these different um, huts around there. And uh, there's probably about 50, 60 people that came out, and I was in the middle there, and I began to preach to this interpreter, and all of a sudden, in the middle of this message, this guy comes running through the town, and he's furious. He's angry. You can tell that he's drunk. You can tell that uh, he's not in control, and he's just spewing venom, and he's screaming and making a scene and all this kind of stuff, and, and he gets up in the middle, and he's just pointing his finger at me, and he's saying all these things. I have no idea what he's saying. They stopped the translation right then, which I'm very grateful for, and he's just pointing right there in my face. And he runs back to his hut, and, and I start to, to kind of continue a little bit from that point forward. And, and the guy comes back out with this bow and arrow. And he runs back up to the front, and he points it. And he pulls it back, and he points it right in my face. And then, fortunately, there's some people in the crowd. They tackle him, and the, the translator right there, they tackled him too, and they put him to the ground. And the other crew, they came and grabbed us, and they, we ran out the back of the town and tried to bring us to safety and that kind of a thing. And remember leaving that thing kind of going, oh my, this is one of the most bizarre experiences I think I've ever had. We went back to our place we were staying that night and, and we're kind of processing the whole thing. Okay, what do we do from here? Like that, like, what do we do from here? We got word that they, the police ended up coming. That man was a regular violent offender. They ended up taking him to jail that night. Um, we're going to keep him there for a number of weeks because uh, he'd been a repeat offender, was a very violent man and stuff. And so we're talking about it that night, and we're kind of praying and trying to figure out, okay, where do we go tomorrow? What do we even do? And we had this strong sense that we needed to go back. We needed to go find this guy and actually go to the prison and, um, and share the gospel with him. And so the next day, that's what we did. We got some rice and some of our team. They brought food and, and some provisions and things of that nature. We went to the prison, and the prison's not like we have today. It's very, very small. There's only a couple handful of, of prisoners that are there, a number of guards and things like that. And we walk in, and, and we tell them what we wanted to do, and they bring this man out there. And they bring another, other prisoners that are out there, and all the guards and everybody comes out to this crowd, and, and we start preaching. We start sharing the gospel with them. We start praying for them. And we start telling them that, that God still loves them, 
and that obviously that his sin and his anger and all these different things, it's wrong and it's sinful before God, but, but God still loves him. We start preaching the gospel, and I love that. was one of the most beautiful times I think I've ever had preaching the gospel before. It was just one of these, we were going after it, and, and, and it was a little while into it, and, and all of a sudden, like the, guards, like, the guards came to the front, and they're like, so this grace is for me. And again, it's all through translators and muffled and things of that nature, but they kind of broke down. And shortly after that, the guy that was right there, he broke down, and he was overwhelmed with the grace of God for him. He had no idea that a God could even love him in the middle of all of his sin, in the middle of all of his depravity. And he broke down. And we prayed with all these different guards. We prayed with him, and they professed some sort of a faith in the Lord that night. And, and we kind of go back, and we're like, oh, my gosh, that was absolutely incredible. We came back, and we were on this high like you wouldn't believe, and, and we come back, and we're kind of going, okay, Lord, like, okay, that's great. You know, was that real is the big question. Like, was that some sort of a high? Was that some sort of a, hey, get me out of jail card, for, you know, free card? And when we come back, and we go back to the States, and we're following up with the pastors that are still living there in, in Sudan, and come to find out um, he was in jail for about three more weeks. They released him from jail right after that, and as soon as he got out of jail, he found one of the pastors that are in town, and when that pastor began to meet with him and began to disciple him. And he began to meet with him over and over again. And the pastors told us shortly after that he began serving in the church. Then he started joining the pastors in the community, praying with other people. And they gave us back this report that he was a completely changed man. That he was a completely changed man. That everything about him was completely set free. Church, the reason I share that is like sometimes like people need an abnormal love. To give him this picture of this abnormal God who has this abnormal ability to forgive him of the things that have taken place in their life so that they can actually be set free and completely redeemed and so that that evil would not persist and new life would come from them. I think it was Zig Ziglar that used to put it like this. I love this line. He said, hurt people hurt people. You ever heard that before? I heard that Kat's dad loved Zig Ziglar and would always quote him all the time. And I love that line because it's a reminder of what's genuinely going on inside of the soul of your enemy. Hurt people hurt people. In other words, the things that you're seeing done to you, the things that you're seeing all around you and things like that, they're sim symptomatic of a deeper hurt that's going inside. And church, what I'm saying is there's got to be a point in time where we stop fighting pain with more pain. There's got to be a point in time when we're willing to fight pain with the unbelievable grace, healing, and love, and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's my dad's story. My dad I would, tell you his, would tell you his story. He grew up in a home and he had five different fathers in his life. Three during the adolescent years. One of them was incredibly abusive for about 12 years. And he just said he grew up alone. He grew up angry and he grew up abused and he grew up with very little self-worth. And he didn't become a believer and didn't start walking with the Lord until he was a young adult and he began to and he actually met my grandfather, my mom's father, who was a Presbyterian pastor. And he began to receive the love of a father. He said his, the thing that he was never able to understand is how a father in heaven was able to love someone like him when he was never experiencing that from, the, from the, his earthly fathers around him. And he said everything changed when he began to receive the love of a father on earth. And then that, my grandfather came and communicated the hope of the gospel with him. And he began to receive the hope and healing of the Lord Jesus Christ every single day inside of him. And it wasn't until that took place, the love of an earthly father, the love of a heavenly father coming together, that he began to receive the healing and the grace that would, re that would bring peace and, and calm inside of his life today. If you were to meet him, you would see that he's one of the most peaceful, 
just gracious, loving people you've ever met in your life today. And what I'm saying, church, is that at some point in time, like, we've got to stop fighting hurt with hurt. At some point in time, we've got to stop seeking vengeance and consider the fact, hey, maybe in this situation over here, God may want to use me in an abnormal way to bring an abnormal amount of forgiveness and an abnormal amount of patience and an abnormal amount of kindness that they may come to believe in the grace of an abnormal God. So Jesus comes back and he just, he's wrapping up this whole teaching, turning everything upside down. And there's nothing easy about what he's saying here. And he says, that's exactly what I want you to do for everyone around you, not just your friends, but your enemies too. I want to invite you to pray with me.